0: Again, it's hour two on this Tuesday, which feels like a Monday. But it is June the 1st, and so let us march into June. Um, let's think about what we're thinking about. So, how are you thinking about what you're thinking about today? First of all, what are you thinking about? Like, what's on your mind? And what is your mind on? I mean, our mind, our minds, as Christians, our minds are supposed to be fixed on Christ and the things that are above my guess is that our wandering minds lead us to fixate on things far beneath Christ and you know god's not saying that we aren't supposed to pay attention to what's going on in the world he loves the world he created it he's concerned about every every molecule of it and certainly every person in it on it in it mm, not sure In the world, but not of it. Yeah, God's concerned about all of us. He is concerned. He is the universal that is concerned about all the particulars. The question is, do you concern yourself so much with the particulars that you forget or you set aside the reality of the one who is the universal that makes sense of all the particulars? So that's God. God is the universal that makes sense of and helps us make sense of all the particulars. So that is a presupposition. I presuppose. God. I mean, I just go ahead and come right out and say, um, one of my, in fact, my primary presupposition is that God is. God is. So when we talk about presuppositions, we're talking about that which lies beneath or comes before all of our conscious considerations of events or actions what the the foundational ideas that form the filter or the lens through which we see and hear and consider everything else. You have presuppositions, I have presuppositions, everybody else has presuppositions, and they're not all the same. You cannot suppose that the person with whom you are talking shares your presuppositions. So you actually have to know what your own presuppositions are, and you have to be willing to spend enough time with somebody to explore their presuppositions as well. Your presuppositions, my presuppositions, our presuppositions, supply the yarn or the fabric or the thread from which we then knit together our ideas about ourselves and everyone else. So, have you thought lately about your presuppositions? My guess is you haven't because it's like asking a fish to think about water. It's just not what we do. Maybe it's even asking a fish to think about gills like i mean i it's right you just you just presuppose these things so here here are some questions to get you thinking about your own presuppositions is history linear is history cyclical is history something else is there a god is there a god one god many gods if there is a god what is that God like? And how do you know? And if there is a God and he, well, I'm giving a personal uh, preposition there. So I'm already <laughs> revealing my presupposition that yes, there is a God and the universe is personal because there is a God. And yes, this God can be known because he has chose to make himself known and, and he is good. Like all of those are some of my presuppositions. There is a God. He can be known. He has made himself known. He is good. Um, The things that he has done include, but are not limited to, creation, redemptive history. But those are presuppositions. So how do you know what you think you know about the things you think you know things about? And how confident are you in your answers And what gives you that level of confidence? These are conversations that are essential. And you're saying to yourself, this is a lot. This is a lot for the first Tuesday morning of what is supposed to be summer vacation. Well, summer vacation around here is going to be some deep thinking. Um, We're going to talk about what is real and how you know it, what is true and how you know it and why that matters. Meaning, belonging, purpose, life, liberty, happiness, all of it. All right. We are going to come right back. And yeah. Yeah. We're going to continue applying the mind of Christ, and we're going to do so to the headline news of the day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Cold pizza for breakfast, warm cook to wash it down. Maybe a couple of anchovies. What is that what was
0: that? What what is this? What is this person singing about?
1: Cold, what pizza? Are we
0: for breakfast? cold pizza, cold pizza for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Christine Lavin is the name of the song, uh, the artist. Yeah, cold pizza for breakfast, and then warm coke, coke to, to wash, wash it down. It down I hear yeah. that? To, mm, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, Paul you know. is working to find a leftover song because there yeah. are some times when, um, <clears throat> yeah, I am going to riff during uh, a segment, and Paul's <laughs> looking for a song. Paul, I, I like the cold pizza for breakfast. If, could you find one about cold lasagna? Because that is my favorite Ooh, breakfast. See what I can do. Okay, good. Okay. All right. Applying the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day um, presupposes or supposes Christ. It supposes that Christ has a mind about things, that you can know the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, and that by the inspiration and power of the Holy Spirit, the, the mind of Christ can become your mind. You can comprehend apprehend, integrate, and apply the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. You can you can not only understand things the way Christ does, but you can do about them the things Christ would do. And you say to yourself, but I'm I'm not I'm not Christ. Hey 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 you have the very power of God by the inspiration and presence of the Holy Spirit we can apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. Christ has thought about what you're thinking about. And Christ has thought about what you're thinking about in a way that's perfectly aligned with the with the mind and the will of God. And so if that's available, why wouldn't we want to know it? And then knowing it, why wouldn't we want to do it? And that's where the allowing the Holy Spirit to bring me into ever greater conformity with with the will of God, right? With the person of Christ, with the attributes of Christ, with the characteristics of Christ, that's the sanctification process. And I am either willingly participating in that process of sanctification, saying, you know what, I I recognize that there are places where my mind is not the mind of Christ on the matters of the day. I recognize that. I recognize that there are places where I have my own mind, like a horse, you know, trying to have its own head. Um, I recognize that. But in that moment, then, I am going to say God is God and I am not. I am going to submit to his authority as the creator. I'm going to recognize my creatureliness. I'm also going to recognize my sinfulness, my brokenness, my fallenness, my need for redemption. And the gospel as the answer to that, the power of the gospel available to me right now, right now, not only to deal with the consequences of sin in death but to deal with the power of sin right now in my life, in my mind, those strongholds. So how do we apply the mind of Christ to the headline news of this day? So I'm just going to tee up a few headlines here very, very quickly. There is a headline um, about UNICEF. You say UNICEF, What is, you know, UNICEF, those are the good guys, right? Those are are good guys. They're worried about kids around the world. Well, yes, but UNICEF has issued a discussion report entitled Digital Age Assurance Tools and Children's Rights Across the Globe, in which not only do they say that digital access is a universal human right and that every child must be guaranteed access to the digital universe, but that there should be no limits on that access, and that, quote, keeping children from accessing pornography is a violation of their human rights. Now, what is it, when I I read that, uh, what kind of mind is operating there? What kind of worldview, what presuppositions would lead someone to the place where they would say that digital access is a universal human right, that it ought never be limited, and that it is, it's is—it's the way of bringing all children everywhere into equality with one another, equal access to all information, um, and that, quote, keeping children from accessing pornography is a violation of their human rights. Now, that is a different worldview than the mind of Christ. So if I'm going to bring the mind of Christ to bear on this particular headline related to UNICEF, I'm going to ask myself, What is my responsibility as an adult to a child and as an adult to children? Children living in places and spaces and in circumstances that are often horrific and indescribable. What is my responsibility to them? Not just as a fellow human being, but as a Christian This is going to be a conversation, we're going to get to a conversation in that about widows and orphans, and we're going to get into a conversation about sex and sexuality and its rightful place, and we're going to get into a conversation about children and how God feels about them. And you say to yourself, hey, I know some places where Jesus talked about children, where he welcomed them when others tried to push them off. I also recognize the failures of the church over time to um, care well for children, which might lead us to a second headline today. This one is out of the Vatican. The Roman Catholic Church has rewritten its church law for the first time in 40 years, including um, very clear penalties for offenders of sexual abuse, particularly of minors. This is the first time this has happened. The Vatican said just today, just Tuesday, today, June the 1st, Pope Francis has signed off on a rewrite of the Universal Catholic Church's internal penal system, updating a version that's been in place since the 1980s, laying out clearer penalties for the sexual abuse of children. Now, the fact that we have to have a conversation about the sexual abuse of children inside the church ought to set our heads on fire. You, you, you want to ask me a question where I am certain about the mind of Christ on the matter of something? You take his bride, the church, and you so defile her that you would use her institutional power And people who are supposed to be the shepherds of the flock, and they would instead be using those positions and that authority and that power to sexually abuse children? Yeah, you wanna you wanna talk about some some sort of hellbound behavior? All right, so now you see the mind of Christ as applied to the matters of the day does not mean we're not going to get exercised about some things. All right, we have to take a very brief break. When we get back, we're gonna continue doing this. We're gonna apply the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day, to something as seemingly boring as the federal budget. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. La, 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 lasagna. You want the summer lasagna. Magnifico, or maybe spaghetti. Paul Perot. there is nobody better than you. (laughs) Nobody. No, I'm hungry. I want lasagna for breakfast. I'm hungry. I want lasagna for breakfast as well. (sighs) Okay. So we are applying the mind of Christ to the headline news of the day um, in order that we can walk out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So uh, let's take um, what happened on Friday afternoon. Now, by the way, any time that somebody in a position of political power or authority does something on the Friday afternoon prior to a holiday weekend, um, yeah, you know they're trying to hide it. Like in a in a way, there's like, you know, this is this is you're not you're not trying to get a big news cycle if you're releasing big news on the Friday afternoon before a three day weekend. So the White House on a Friday afternoon, just prior to Memorial Day weekend, released the White House budget plan for fiscal year 2022. You say to yourself, Okay, what is it and why should I care? Well, first of all, it's massive. It includes not just a little bit of deficit spending, but deficit spending that far exceeds anything that has been laid out, even by any prior Democratic administration. Um, and so we should look at it at the core of Biden's American or uh, the budget is Biden's American Families Plan focuses on education, childcare, paid family leave, um, infrastructure and something called the American Jobs Plan. So it also has several multi-billion-dollar new priorities across the federal government. Everything from fighting climate change to increasing funding for high-poverty schools, beefing up the Centers for Disease Control, combating gun violence, opioid abuse, on and on and on. Um, there are some really good things in here, and there are some really troubling things in here. The sticker price, once you get to the very bottom of it. So you know, you, you think about when you go and you look at a car, and there's like the standard like price, and then there's like what you end up with at the end once you've added all the things that you wanted to add. Well, the sticker price on President Biden's 2022 uh, fiscal year federal budget is $6 trillion. $6 trillion next year, growing to $8 trillion per year by the end of the decade. Um, How will we pay for that? Well, lots of new taxes, lots and lots and lots of new taxes, raising the corporate tax rate, raising the income tax rate for uh, wealthy uh, uh, earners, raising taxes on capital gains, raising taxes on multinational corporations. Um, So even with all of that baked in, the the budget would still run a huge deficit, $1.8 trillion next year and $1.3 trillion every year after that. So here's what's going on. And all of those new taxes are just designed To take care of some, some of the new program surplus. Like all of the new additions to the budget would be paid for by new taxes, but all those new taxes would not pay for all those new additions, nor would they pay for all of the ways in which we were already spending more than we have um, as a nation. So basically, all of the tax hikes on the rich would be used to pay for the new stuff but over time, in the next generation and the generation after that, uh, the underlying deficit, that bill would come due. Like, you know, so it's going to be the broad middle class that's ultimately going to pay for the underlying deficit. The bill is going to come due. You can't just spend like this and never expect anybody to have to pay for it. So, how do we apply the mind of Christ to this particular thing? Well, we talk about um, resources and we talk about where resources come from and we talk about. Um, work and the and why God gave us work and that work actually exists prior to the fall. Work's not a consequence of the fall. God created us as as people to work. And there's and, and work has dignity and it has value and it's productive. It actually produces something. So what does your work produce? Okay, so all of those conversations. The one thing that is missing I don't want you to miss the thing that's missing because it's got you you're thinking this is a ginormous federal budget surely it's not missing anything oh no it's missing something and the thing that it's missing is important it is missing the Hyde amendment and you say to yourself what i'm not even sure i remember what that's about i feel like the Hyde amendment is has something to do with abortion yes that's exactly right um it has to do with abortion so then-candidate Biden supported the Hyde Amendment, but he reversed his position on that, frankly, in order to get uh, uh, the nomination. It is um, it is the portion um, of federal legislation that provides for U.S. taxpayer dollars to not be used to pay for abortion. Um, and so The fact that the Hyde Amendment is no longer in the federal budget um, is really, really significant. And so that is a conversation that we will have in the future as well, because the abortion conversation is one we have to have. We cannot escape it. We cannot avoid it. If you're going to apply the mind of Christ to the matters of this day, uh, then you're going to have to learn to apply the mind of Christ to the conversation related to life itself. And not just when it begins and when it's okay to, you know, take life into your own hands, because that's ultimately the conversation about authority and autonomy. And that gets us back to the conversation about presuppositions. If my presupposition is that there is a God and that God has revealed himself and can be known, and I am going to bother to know him, then I'm also going to recognize that God is the one who has created all things. And if there is a creator and I am a creature, then I am by uh, ontological reality under the authority of that creator. As the creature, I am under the authority of the creator. I can either joyfully submit to that creator and his goodness and his plan, or I can throw off the yoke and declare myself autonomous. Now, I'm not autonomous, but I can declare myself to be autonomous, me, my, mind. Uh, making uh, a name for myself, not worrying about making his name great, I can uh, imagine that I not only can decide what to do, but I can decide what happens to others as well. And that is the conversation about abortion, if you're going to bring the mind of Christ to apply uh, to the things of this day. All right, got to take a brief break for break point. And then um, when we come back in the second half of today's program, we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis with Harry Lee Poe, author of uh, Becoming C.S. Lewis and Now the Making of C.S. Lewis. So all that is next on Mornings with Carmen. I love C.S. Lewis. I have appreciated his writings, and I have appreciated knowing and learning more about his life. Harry Lee Poe uh, is the Charles Coulson University Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University. Uh, he has taught a course on C.S. Lewis there for some 15 years. He is the author of The Inklings at Oxford, C.S. Lewis Remembered, um, and Becoming C.S. Lewis, and now the debut of the making of C.S. Lewis, the conversation about how the Lewis we know and love came to be the new the Lewis we know and love, so how he moved from being a devout atheist to an ardent Christian apologist. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: This is Max Locato. Nothing activates happiness like intercessory ministry. The scripture says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. So you come not as a stranger, but as an heir to the promise. You are his ambassador. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Our king will listen to our request. After all, You're a member of his priesthood. Peter said, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So in our intercession, we function as priests standing in the gap between people of earth and God. This is how happiness happens. And this is Max Locato.
0: All right, C.S. Lewis may well be one of your total favorite writers. If he's not, um, yeah, you need to read some Lewis this summer. Uh, Dr. Harry Lee Poe has made a career not only of studying Lewis, but of sharing C.S. Lewis with others. He is the Charles Colson University Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University. He has taught a course on C.S. Lewis for more than 15 years he is the author of The Inklings of Oxford, C.S. Lewis Remembered, Becoming C.S. Lewis, and he's here today to talk with us about the making of C.S. Lewis. We're talking about one period of time in Lewis's life from 1918 to 1945. Dr. Poe, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
2: Thank you, Carmen. It's so good to be with you.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you. This is a uh, volume two uh, of right. uh, uh, of a series, and so let's talk about, um, Let me, maybe we rewind a little bit, remind us um about who C.S. Lewis is kind of up to this point, and then we'll get to 1918 and we'll march ahead.
2: C.S. Lewis was a professor of medieval and renaissance literature. Uh, he taught for many years at Oxford and then went to Cambridge. Uh, he was an atheist until he was in his uh, early 30s, at which point he converted to faith in Christ. It was a surrender, something he had kicked against for years. And uh, after that he uh almost immediately became an apologist for uh uh the Christian faith. Um he had a stellar academic career, but then he became um popular during World War II uh for uh being able to speak to the common everyday person without a faith background and explain uh, the Christian faith to them.
0: Depending on um, what people have read of C.S. Lewis, they may think that he is one thing or another. I mean, if you've only read Mere Christianity, you may think one thing. If you've only read The Chronicles of Narnia, you may think one thing. If you've only read The Screwtape Letters, you may think one thing. If you've only read—you see what you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. Talk with us. I mean, he is a very—I mean, he— you know, he doesn't stay in his lane, and yet he stays in his lane. Talk about the breadth and scope of his writing.
2: Well, you have really identified one of the the amazing things about the man. Uh, his academic books are still in print um, almost 100 years later, and that just doesn't happen. Academic b- books tend to stay in print about three years. And um, so he, if he had never written anything about his faith, he would still be um, one of the two or three most prominent literary critics of the 20th century, but at the same time, he had varied interests. He was he was interested in science fiction, is just a real kick, and so he wrote science fiction stories. Um, he loved um, the medieval romances and all of his children's stories. The Chronicles of Narnia, those seven volumes, are really um, medieval romances for children. Um, he had a he had a huge sense of humor and irony, and uh, he was a w- very witty man. And um, in church one time, it was a really terrible sermon, boring sermon, and his mind began to wander. And he was concerned with the temptation of your mind wandering when you were in church. And he conceived the screw tape letters in which uh, a senior... Uh, Devil is um, giving advice to his uh, young nephew, just starting off his career as a tempter on how best to go about tempting the ordinary person and so um, he he just had a real grasp of life really and the breadth of it, and um, he saw the spiritual significance of the everyday, the commonplace, and the ordinary. And um, I think that uh, hopefully speaks to your listeners, because I think that's one of the things your your ministry is, is doing, connecting faith with uh, the ordinary um, and the everyday of life. Absolutely.
0: And one of the things that maybe stands out to me um, in, in what you're doing in this series of books, uh, we're talking about the second installment in a series on the life of C.S. Lewis with the author... Uh, Professor Harry Lee Poe from Union University. The book we're discussing today is The Making of C.S. Lewis, but The Becoming of C.S. Lewis is the lead-in to this conversation. Um, So I was struck by the people he meets along the way. I was struck by his willingness to radically rethink things. Um, The relationships that he has are influential. The time in which he lives, like he's responsive to the circumstances um, of what's going on in the world Talk with us a little bit about what we get when we get into this portion of Lewis's life.
2: One of the most essential things about being a Christian is one's willingness to change one's mind. If we've, um, well, I was going to say, if we've been steeped in sin, well, of course we've been steeped in sin prior to our conversion. And that means it's not just that we have to decide we believe in Jesus, it means we have to completely reorient our entire understanding of the world, the universe, people, everything else. And one thing you get from Lewis is um, his willingness to change his mind. That's what the word repentance means. Um, Literally, it means to change one's mind. Uh, His friend uh, Owen Barfield, who was not a Christian, often said of Lewis, Um, that Lewis didn't believe in uh, Darwin's natural selection, uh, but he was always changing his mind, this evolution idea. He was always changing his mind, whereas Barfield, who did believe in natural selection, never changed his mind about anything. So there's a spiritual grace that's given to help us change our mind about our own old attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, Um, So that's one big thing. The other big thing, I think, um, was Lewis's grasp of temptation. And um, once we've turned to Christ in faith, uh, once the Holy Spirit has regenerated us, um, we're out of Satan's clutches. But um, he can still uh, work on us, and uh, we ourselves can become a stumbling block to other people. And so Lewis was profoundly aware of uh, how temptation comes. And uh, it's usually not the big things that you go to jail for or wound up uh, in some scandal sheet. It's the ordinary things. And for Lewis, um, his worst sin was pride. He was smart, and he knew it. He was clever, and he knew it. And he was prideful, and he really knew that. And so What you wind up getting with Lewis is a man who in practice is very humble and yet is aware of how Satan uses um, the everyday moments of life to estrange us from our family, our friends, um, to take up things, habits and behaviors that are destructive to us. And so we see that playing out in Lewis's life and thus it informed his writing. So one of the things I do in this book is show how Lewis's personal faith and everyday life informed uh, all of his writing.
0: I'm talking with Professor Harry Lee Poe. We are talking about the making of C.S. Lewis, and we'll be right back. Talking with Dr. Harry Lee Poe. Uh, We are talking about C.S. Lewis, and specifically we're talking today about Dr. Poe's brand new book, The Making of C.S. Lewis. It is the second in a series um, on the life of C.S. Lewis. And in this book, we cover the years 1918 to 1945, really Lewis's um, migration from being a devout atheist, or pilgrimage is probably a better word, uh, from being a devout atheist to really being one of the people to whom we can all point as a, a great uh, uh, a person who articulates and defends Christianity in a time not only of peace, but a time of war as well. Uh, Dr. Poe, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the times in which Lewis lived and how the circumstances of life, as you see it, influenced, um, you know, the way he approached these conversations.
2: Okay. Well, he... He uh, was born at the end of the reign of Queen Victoria in 1898. Um, when he was a teenager, um, when others would be beginning college here in the United States, he was a first lieutenant um, on the front line in France in the ghastliness of World War One. He was wounded, and uh, he bore that wound the uh, rest of his life. It was one of those, I think it inspired... Uh, Tolkien's idea of, of uh, Frodo carrying a, um, a, a wound that wouldn't heal. Lewis had to have surgery during World War II to finally remove the last of the shrapnel um, that was making its way toward his lung and his heart. So um, uh, he had that ghastly experience. He came to, back to Oxford after World War um, one as a fashionable young man. And uh, he was caught up in the spirit of the age. He was an atheist, and he was dabbling in psychology, and it was the fashionable thing to do. And in his own spiritual biography, Surprised by, Law, uh, by um, Joy, um, he calls this the new look, the new look. Um, but while he was this fashionable young man with all the new ideas and the uh, radical view of life, um he was being <laughs> attacked, not by Satan, but by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and, um, uh, so he, he, the, the things that he, that he loved were rattling his experience of materialism. And he kept having this recurring experience that he would call joy. We would call it a, a mystical experience, something reaching out and touching him. Um, but he was also rethinking his materialism in light of the stories he loved. He, he loved these medieval uh, stories of valor and courage and going to the end of the world um, and risking all uh, to win the great prize, whatever it happened to be. And he, he loved this story, read it over and over again. And in fact, it winds up being the plot for his three science fiction stories and the Chronicles of Narnia, all of which involve a journey in which the people who take the journey are changed. And so you use the word pilgrimage. Um, he first uh, wrote his spiritual autobiography. We, we called it his testimony. Um, right after he was converted, it's called uh, The Pilgrim's Regress. Not that he um, lapsed or was apostate, but In contrast to the Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan, who goes from the city of destruction to the heavenly city, Lewis realized that now that he's come to the cross, he's got to go back into the world and live, and that's the idea of the regress—that when we're saved, we're still in this world, and that was the uh, prayer of Christ um, in uh, John chapter 17: that that we not be taken out of the world, but we live in it, and so. um, Lewis's testimony would find its way um, not into just a straightforward um, uh, book like Surprised by Joy, but Mere Christianity is actually Lewis's testimony of his conversion. It's not really a philosophical work. He's telling us step by step how he changed his mind about the existence of God and about the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and that was fascinating to me when I uh, had gone into detail on uh, how he happened to um, change his mind about Christ and realize, oh, my goodness, he's, that's what he's explaining over the radio in um, mm. the beginning of World War I to all his listeners who maybe have had no church background at all.
0: Surprised by Joy, maybe you would describe as his spiritual biography and mere Christianity, this chronicle of how he changed his mind. It's it's definitely a more cerebral approach to the conversation, the pilgrim's regress, maybe the first writing down of his testimony, this, you know, we're we're saved, um, or when we're saved, we're still in the world, but but we're no longer of it, and, you know, how then do we live? Um, So... Again, the the diversity and the breadth of his writing is really extraordinary. Um, when uh, you know you're you are working your way uh, writing through his life, so this book takes us from 1918 to 1945. He doesn't marry Joy until 1956. So I think we're all anticipating and hoping that there is going to be at least one more book. Yes.
2: There is. It's already written. It's already in the hands of the publisher, and it will come out about this time next year.
0: Put us on the list. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to be reading. Um, we need to go back, if we haven't already, and read Becoming C.S. Lewis. This is the making of C.S. Lewis, and we will await uh, the third book as well. But maybe when we're talking about recommended reading from C.S. Lewis, you could read him chronologically. You could read him thematically. Is there some other order, and is there a place that you would recommend starting?
2: Oh goodness! Um, I start with the kind of book you like, because as you mm. suggested, he writes different <laughs> kinds of books. So he wrote three science fiction books. Um, for those who don't really like fiction, and I have some friends who who are only interested in ideas, not stories, then I would I would start with mere Christianity. Um, uh, for those who like uh, literature and the study of literature, I would read uh, The Allegory of Love. I, I mention in this, this second volume that The Allegory of Love is the only book C.S. Lewis ever wrote. All the others are just overflow from that book, and you'll find mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the outline for The Chronicles of Narnia. You'll find his concern uh, that he expresses in The Abolition of Man. Uh, the idea for the four loves is all in The Allegory of Love. Um, and uh, just over and over again, we see uh, his, his main thought fully developed, well, not fully developed, but outlined by hmm. 1936 when he published The Allegory of Love but he was able to write it because of um, what happened in that first book as a teenager, his interests in literature. And it was those teenage years and what he was reading then, and then in his 20s as an atheist, what he was reading to in order to write the Allegory of Love, that made him able to be an apologist because he had to read all of the Christian literature of the medieval period he had to know the Bible, he had to read the old theologians in order to understand the medieval literature, so that when he became a Christian, he had the information, but now it was enlivened by the Holy Spirit, and so he could immediately become an apologist, which is is fascinating to me.
0: It's totally fascinating. It is amazing how God works it all together, is it not? I mean, it's just it's just extraordinary
2: it is yes
0: well, I love um I love Lewis. I love um so many things about him, and your series of books is helping me to know him better. So thank you, Dr. Poe. That is Dr. Harry Lee Poe, the book we are discussing today, the making of c s. Lewis, but we might want to recommend that you read. Becoming C.S. Lewis as a lead-in to this one. And you can find Dr. Poe at Union University. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: What a pleasure. We'll be right back.
2: Okay, I'm definitely
0: going to go see if I can make some sort of homage to lasagna for breakfast. I don't know. Now I have a hankering. All right. What do you have a hankering for today? Let's keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Let's get our minds aligned with the mind of Christ as we walk our faith out into the world that he so loves. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.